0: It's artistry. A master painter carefully applying Benjamin Moore Regal Select eggshell with deftly executed strokes. The roller, lightly cradled in his hands, applying just the right amount of paint. Mm, it's like hearing poetry in motion. Benjamin Moore, see the love.
1: What does motion sound
0: like? With Kizikan's Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. In September 1666, a devastating blaze swept through England's capital, in a catastrophic event that was to have a lasting impact on the city and its people. In today's episode, we're talking about the Great Fire of London, with historian Rebecca Radiel. Putting your questions, Rebecca, along with popular internet search queries, was BBC History Revealed editor Charlotte Hodgman.
2: The first thing to kind of know, I guess, is is kind of how how did the how did the fire start? Um. Well, um, the fire started.
1: This is the one part that everyone knows. To be perfectly honest, we know that the fire started in Thomas Fariner's bakehouse. In the early hours of Sunday morning on september the second sixteen sixty six and from there it spread um so it it absolutely started there but obviously, if you'd been alive and wandering around the city at that time of night, probably not that time of night actually, but maybe in the early morning, there were lots of rumors about where it had actually started, and people were um you know tapping into pre existing xenophobic feeling to blame foreigners in inverted commas um, so but we do know it started in Thomas Fariner's bakehouse.
2: So one of the questions a popular question that we were um, being asked and this is from uh, somebody called Today's Rewind on Twitter wants to know um, how long did the fire last
1: The easy answer is to say that it lasted for around four and a half days. So it started, it broke out in the early hours of Sunday morning, ended roughly around Thursday. But what I want to caveat that with is the fact that for weeks and weeks, and actually some months afterwards, when um, people were wandering around the city, the ruins of the city, it was still smouldering. There was still smoke there for a long time. So the short answer, four and a half days, long answer, well, it could have been a couple of months.
2: (laughs) Gosh, squeering uh, croissant on Twitter, wanted to know, um, what's considered our best approximation of the actual death toll?
1: What I always say with this question is that if anyone gives you a straight answer, then don't trust it because we cannot know. It's it's something that we literally cannot know. At the time or, you know, a a couple of years later, there were suggestions and um, quotes and thoughts leading to... A low figure, a low death toll, um, around six or eight, sometimes 12 people to have perished during the Great Fire of London. But I think there are a lot of things that haven't been accounted for. So, people that were having to um, take refuge on Moorfields, for example, during the Great Fire, I think a lot of people would have suffered the effects of the fire and destitution and probably perished much sooner than they would have done ordinarily. But equally, going into the parish burial records, which I have. I have done and you find interesting shifts in the the way that well the the types of deaths that are reported so usually you'd expect to find a significant number of infant deaths in parish burial records and in some parishes these are completely absent now why I mean why why would they be absent in other in other records the mean age of death shoots up and it becomes a much higher uh, uh, you know People are dying at a much um old older age. Um, so there's there's interesting patterns going on. There, there are accounts of you know people being found um, in locations like the, the writer William Tazewell, for example, who was a schoolboy during the time of the Great Fire. Notes how he saw the remains of an old woman um, in St Paul's Cathedral who'd perished during the fire as well. So I don't. I genuinely I wouldn't like to give a figure. One thing that I often say though is. In terms of size, impact and time of year and the makeup of the city – weirdly, the Great Fire of Chicago is actually a very useful parallel. It was a fairly wooden city when it broke out in 1871, I believe it was. Um, And they had a much better handle on the population and the number of people who died. And during the Great Fire of Chicago, we think that around 300 people died. So while I wouldn't like to say, yes, it was in the hundreds during the Great Fire of London, I think it's a useful way to think about things, perhaps.
2: Why did the um? Or how did the the fire spread so quickly? Um, it was a perfect
1: combination of factors, really. So. The London during the year sixteen sixty six had enjoyed a really warm, dry summer, and this was towards the tail end of it. and because the city was very wooden and um, lots of you know lo- most of the the buildings in the in the city of London, so this is the historic walled section of of London were made out of wood. so they dried out, they'd become essentially tinder. So you've got those two things, the dry summer the fact that the city's a tinderbox, but then also you have the really strong easterly wind that blows the fire once it starts um, westward, I should say. And then you have the fact that the fire broke out during the early hours of a Sunday morning when everybody would have been in bed. It's much quieter. And this is a time where people stick much more rigidly to working patterns and the Sunday is still sacrosanct. So people wouldn't be out and about as much as they would be on any other day of the week. So these these variety of factors all combined to ensure that when the Great Fire started, it spread really quickly and was able to really take a hold of, of the historic city.
2: Charlotte Sikorski on Instagram wants to know um how great was the fire in relation to other fires that had occurred in, in London.
1: Yeah, pretty great um, in a kind of large sense. Not great. I mean, it wasn't fun. Yeah, um, no. yeah, it was it was great. I mean, often we use these words like great, this, great, that, and great the other. So the great plague of the previous year, for example, was great in terms of the death toll, like, you know, more people died. During that outbreak of plague, than had done previous during previous outbreaks in the 17th century, but proportionally, perhaps earlier plagues um, may have been more deadly. So, the term "great" is often problematic. But this was a great fire. There had been huge fires in London before. London Bridge um, had had sections of it burning, and one section was actually quite useful during the Great Fire because it. It's arguable that it may have prevented it um spreading. It created a fire break that prevented the fire spreading over to Southwark. So yes, this was this was a large fire um, by comparison to other fires that had happened in the city.
2: Abigail Marin um asks, What do we know what sort of temperatures the fire would have reached, kind of at its at its peak? Interestingly, we
1: do actually. Um, so there was archaeological Excavations in um, certain sections of the city of London a few decades ago. And from those archaeological discoveries, researchers were able to point to um, the fire reaching 1700 degrees Celsius, which is extraordinarily. Hot <laughs> yeah. but we also get accounts, um, you know eyewitness accounts from the time that point to metal melting. and I mean, for that to happen, the temperatures would have had to have been incredibly high. And um, people talk about looking, you know, if they face the fire, the direction of the fire, they can feel the heat on their face. And um, there are cats that um, Samuel Pepys, well, one cat in particular that Samuel Pepys spots after the great fire and all its fur has been singed off. So it was an incredibly hot fire.
2: One of the, one of the sort of common things that people talk about when it comes to the Great Fire is, um, is its impact on the, you talked about the plague of the previous year. So, uh, maybe we've had quite a few questions asking, did it, did it actually end the plague of that previous year? Did it have any impact on that?
1: No, the plague from the previous year was already on its way out and the number of plague deaths had been dwindling. So the plague had kind of fallen probably around March time, 1666. I mean, plague was endemic in the country, so there were still a few plague deaths happening. Um, And in actual fact, when you look at the burial records from the week and the week after the Great Fire of London, you can see a, a couple of plague deaths there, but it wasn't as a consequence of the Great Fire that the Great Plague ended. It was already ending.
2: The, the rather aptly named breadcrumbs uh, wants to know: um, <laughs> Do we know? Do we know much about the actual bakery itself? What it looked like? You mentioned that it, that's that's where the the fire started. Um, what do we know about the bakery and and, and the baker? Oh right, okay, yeah. So. Um well, we know that there was a bakehouse. So it was
1: on, on Pudding Lane, um, mm. but it was in a little kind of enclave on Pudding Lane. And he, there was a bakehouse, and then there would have been the the house that um, Fariner and his family lived in. So it was in this bakehouse that the fire started. His household, um, he was living with um, a couple of his kids, but also a maid, and the maid sadly perished during... She was one of the... Well, she was the first victim of the Great Fire of London. Yeah, we, we know that. We know that Thomas Fariner, interestingly... I found that Thomas Fariner had been, as a kid, sent to Bridewell Prison, um, which was a kind of house of correction for children at that time and different you know, waifs and strays. So it was also a place where and um, patrons would often find apprentices and um set young young boys up on a career path and i think that's what's happened what happened with thomas Fariner, the fact that he was found wandering around the city in um 1627 was sent to the house of correction a couple of times and then shortly after was apprenticed as a, as a baker so we know a bit about his life from that and we also know that he was supplying quote unquote ship's biscuit to um to the navy as well so he had a good a good contract with the navy um at the time that the great fire broke out and the navy at that time was at at war so it would have been fairly lucrative for him
2: yeah um actually lauren malaney on facebook was wondering what happened to thomas after the great fire of london precious
1: little actually he did get away i mean it was an accident it was an accident no you know he, he didn't start this fire on purpose but his bakehouse was to blame and he was fine. He didn't. I mean, people kind of knew that there was an, an almost a, um, a kind of cognitive dissonance that was going on. They knew logically that the fire had started at some uh, at Thomas bake bakehouse, but equally they wanted to blame Catholics as well. So they had those two things going on in their mind. He died in 1670. His children were actually signed the bill that prosecuted. The man that was used as a scapegoat um, and was officially blamed for the the great fire.
2: Okay, yeah, we'll we'll, we'll come on to the the, the suspects in, in a minute. Hannah Laura Ridgley um, wanted to know: Was there any organised fire service in place that that was there to tackle the fire?
1: So, so there were fire engines that that existed, but they were more. They just to give a, a little description of them. So they were kind of like a cart with wheels and a um bucket with a pump on the top the bucket would obviously be filled with water and then the pump would be used to squirt this water up at the um the affected areas so they try to get these the, one of these fire engines up towards Pudding Lane pretty early on, but it was just too cumbersome, and the the roads in London at this time, the streets and lanes were all just far too narrow for these things to be effective. Other things that they did to try and prevent fire was um, using water squirts, which were handheld things. They'd have like picks that would be used to pull down certain parts of buildings, but then the the main and most effective. Approach to a fire that was seen to be quite, you know, growing quite significantly was to create fire breaks. And that would basically be just pulling down surrounding houses and um, buildings to prevent the fire spreading any further. So that's that's essentially what was going on. In terms of organisation, it fell to so the jurisdiction of London, specifically the City of London, and a few out parishes as well, fell under the control of the Lord Mayor and the City Aldermen as well. Um, so it was kind kind of at one remove from the royal family and royal con- control that said the royals could step in and and take over but it was there was always a bit of friction between whitehall and the city of london that's a whole other topic <laughs> but just just so you know that that was there so anyway the, the the control for organizing the fight against the fire should have fallen to the lord mayor and the aldermen and the various parishes. But for various reasons, namely the Lord Mayor that was there at the time, this didn't happen effectively. So the job of tackling the fire was given to Charles II's brother, James, the Duke of York, who would later be James II. And he organised teams of men to tackle the fire at various points around the city. Um, and he would, you know, he was encouraging people to be involved, volunteers to be involved with bread and beer. I mean, I say beer, it's not like they were getting drunk and having a jolly good time. Beer was, the, you know, the, the easiest and um, safest drink to have at that point in time in terms of, uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't bad for the body in, in ways that were Water might have been. Um, so these teams were set up all around the city to tackle various parts. So a key location in the fight against the fire was near the Fleet River because the Fleet River separated... Essentially, the city of London from the west part of London and the west part of London that would lead to the palaces of governance, so Whitehall and Westminster as well. So, no one wanted the fire to spread further than that. So, that's these teams were set up. There was also a team of schoolboys from um, Westminster School that were on the east side tackling the fire by the Tower of London, and they had. Overall, they really didn't have that much effect because the winds were too strong. The fire was too full by the time that this concerted effort was brought in to to fight it. But that's a nice, that's a long answer to um to the question.
2: <laughs> um, Bushy beard Tom wants to know: was was anybody actually ever taken to court and prosecuted over over the fire? Um.
1: So I just want to say, brilliant name! Congratulations, <laughs> Bushy Beard Tom. Um. Yes, someone was prosecuted. I kind of hinted at that before. So it was mm. a man, a French man named, um, Robert Hubert, um, who was prosecuted. Um, he had an alibi though. He was actually away, um, <laughs> during the time oh. of the great fire. He was at sea. Um, nevertheless, he confessed. I don't know why he confessed. No one quite knows why. Um, We've, we see historically sometimes people confess to things that they've not done. We can only, we can only guess as to his reasons why and his mental state um, when he was making this confession. But in any case, he did confess to it. It helped that it was a French man because it kind of played into this xenophobia that was going on at the time. Xenophobia against French people and Catholics more generally. Hubert wasn't actually a Catholic, he was a Protestant, but nevertheless that did you know it didn't it didn't matter. The narrative was there, and the narrative seemed to fit and He was tried, convicted, and then executed in october sixteen sixty six for the Great Fire of London overall. Catholics were blamed. um, And we know that on the monument that was erected after the Great Fire of London, for a good while, it stated that the Catholics were to blame for the Great Fire. Um, So yeah, there was was a scapegoat. And it's a, a fairly sad story, to be perfectly honest.
2: I mean, was there an official parliamentary investigation into into the fire after after it kind of you know all the had calmed down? Um, in terms of an
1: investigation, not so much. They they obviously wanted to get to the bottom. The, the priority was getting to the bottom of what to do afterwards um, in terms of how to recover this city. Um, and that's where we get really interesting developments in terms of, and this, it can be quite boring actually, in terms of home ownership, landlords, tenants, who owned what bit and which bits of London. And you get the development of these, um, what would have been, have come to be known as fire courts, which were, Phenomenally successful in mitigating what could have been quite a complex and messy and antagonistic time after the Great Fire. So that was the main priority. But then also how to rebuild this city and what to do to ensure that this kind of thing wouldn't happen again.
2: Um, were there any sort of conspiracy theories going around? You know, you, you mentioned that there was a lot of kind of xenophobia um, around. You know, and, and people being blamed for it. But was there were there any other sort of theories going around at the time? And how how you know how how popular were those?
1: There, yeah, plenty of conspiracy theories that mainly revolved around imminent an in, imminent invasion from by the French and the Dutch as well, because England was at war with the Dutch at this point in time um, over trade bases uh, along the West African coast. But that's another story. So the, there were. Rumors. So obviously you have all these people that are displaced. You have um, thousands of people living in dire conditions on moorfields and the surrounding areas around London. They're all starving. They're all, not starving, but they're all very hungry. They're all incredibly sleep deprived. And all it takes is like the whiff of a little bit of rumour for it to spread and circulate and flow around. And these rumours were that there was going to be a Dutch and a French invasion, that they were coming to attack and they were basically... Basically on their way, and these rumours spread extraordinarily quickly because you actually find just if a few days into the fire, you find reports of an imminent attack reaching you know various locations like Wiltshire and places. Um, you you find people commenting that oh you know the D- the Dutch are invading, the French are invading, and um, so this was what was going on. And then you see because of this because of this fear, you see the darker side of the Great Fire of London. Um, And this is what commentators at the time said, you know, when the fire erupted, but it also erupted something else in people's souls, which was anger, fear and xenophobia. And this became violent in some instances. I won't go into the details um, of the violence because it is quite disturbing. But needless to say, there were several attacks that have been noted in the records that would have been incredibly traumatic for those experiencing them and was you can see from the records traumatic for those who witnessed them as well.
2: Keep keeping on this kind of the, the the Dutch link here um Michael de Reuter on on Twitter wanted to know um whether anybody considered the link to the fire in terschelling that had happened uh, that's in, in the Netherlands um that had happened three three weeks earlier I think it was. Was there any link you might want to kind of perhaps explain a little bit around around the actual, that, that fire, if if you can as well, just to put it in context.
1: Yeah, so Mikhail de Reuter, great name again, very appropriate for the time period because he was, of course, a, a major player in the Anglo-Dutch wars. He was, he's probably the most celebrated Dutch naval hero, in inverted commas again, um, of all time. He's he's basically, to the Dutch, he's there, he's there. Nelson. Three weeks before the Great Fire of London, England was at war with the Dutch and they'd organised to do a raid on a small area of the Netherlands. And this was orchestrated by a man named Robert Holmes, who was a really unsavory figure from this period in time. He was a very angry kind of hothead that just did what he wanted to do caused maximum destruction with everything he did. Um, and he he raided a, a village, set it to light. England celebrated this as a great victory. There was even pamphlets and images of this. And, uh, and the Dutch were appalled at what had happened. But then obviously the Great Fire of London happened shortly afterwards. So it was, and this kind of fed into the idea that the Dutch were invading, this idea that there was a retaliation for what had already happened, or in any case, it might have been some kind of karma. So yes, that was absolutely... Absolutely in, in people's minds as well.
2: And and that, that would have been a that would have been something that people in England would, would have known known about, that news had come back by then about it all? People in London
1: would have known about it right. because every victory, every naval victory was celebrated with bonfires and grand processions throughout the city of London. Yeah. Um, so it would be hard not to know about it. Whether people whether people around England you know, in general knew about it, because obviously this is, we're, we're, we're focusing on London, England was largely, even at this point, largely still an agrarian country. Um, so, you know, whether they knew exactly what had happened during this this um, attack, I, I, I don't know. Um, I, I, it probably is quite unlikely that they would have known the particulars, but definitely people in London where the Great Fire happened would have known.
2: I mean, do you think there's any there's anything in the kind of retaliation idea? Do we know how it started in the bakery? You know, could it have been arson? I, I, I find it.
1: Uh, yes, it would be very unlikely that it was arson. Although I have seen um, a couple of a couple of historians have made interesting comments about. So when when the Great Fire started, it seemed to people on the ground. That there were coordinated arson attacks in buildings that were, you know, some distance away, so they couldn't they couldn't work it out in their heads why a building that was, you know, a good distance from the fire would suddenly set alight. So there have been conversations and arguments made that maybe this was just people being opportunistic, or you know, thought, oh, you know, someone set something alight, let's let's join in and do something as well. I I'm not convinced by that. Argument, because there are also accounts of huge flakes of debris um spreading around um, in the air and floating down and landing on different places, and I feel that those seemingly unconnected eruptions of fire were actually connected to this debris that was that was um, going through the air. Still to come on the History
2: Extra podcast.
1: From his account, we get we get the, the human side of things. So we get stories of women in the streets after the great fire um, putting big wads of sugar into barrels of beer that they found and drinking them. You get the um, descriptions of pigeons having their wings scorched. You get this description of a cat having its fur singed. So all of these human things um, we're really lucky to have from his diary. <laughs>
0: Anna Patterson on
2: Twitter was talking about the, the people made homeless by the fire. Um, do we know what happened to them? Um, do we have any evidence of you know who gave them food, clothing, or, or shelter and and you know, how was that organised? Um yeah, we do we do know a bit about what, what happened
1: to them um immediate well during the fire and, and immediately after in particular. So there was a call out to neighbouring Towns, villages, um, to help with food and sustenance, to help, you know, to help with them, um, and this this arrived kind of piecemeal. It arrived, and then um, as things became increasingly more serious um, in terms of the numbers of people that were stranded, the navy was brought in and donated canvases that would have been used for sails and various things to create tents for them to sleep in, um, on these fields. Um, and also ship's biscuit was diverted to the refugees as well. So they had that to eat as well. And um, that said people that were wandering around and, um, you know, seeing what was going on, people like John Evelyn, um, said that they weren't really touching the ship's biscuit, and um they were still they were still basically in need. But there were efforts that were being made. And then later on, there were charitable donations that were given all across all across the country, and um, charitable donations to the Great Fire of London. And to be honest, if you go into any old church you'll probably find some some link in the records to donations that were made to the Great Fire of London in in 1666.
2: Yeah, I mean was there any formal help given by the crown or by by parliament? Um,
1: well the formal help that was given was was this, the navy. Was, was, was um the navy because the navy yeah. was obviously an, it was the the biggest public sector body if you for want of a better phrase at this time so that was the way that they were given help but also that Afterwards, there were guidelines that were put in place to um, help people in a way, but more help the city get itself back on its feet um, in terms of making everything more orderly and um, removing these makeshift shops and um, commercial premises that people had put together with basically the ruins of their old houses and their old um, businesses. Um, So there there were guidelines that were put in place as well.
2: Which actually brings me to the, the next question um, from at Woking SF history. I think it's a, a school history department. Um, so they wanted to know um, how quickly was London rebuilt after the fire? Um, and to what extent did this stimulate economic growth um, and transform the you know those the lives of those who lived in in these parts of London? Um
1: yeah. So London, I mean, the building project got underway really quickly. Within days, actually, you find that people were actually marking, you know, putting out posts to mark out the various locations of the old areas of London that had been destroyed. And I think it's important to remember, and I always try to emphasise this if I'm giving a talk, that we often see these kind of aerial pictures of London after the Great Fire, where you can see the damage, you can see that, you know, around 80% of the old city of London is. Been destroyed, and that you know a a certain section of the west um, outside of the city walls has been destroyed as well. But we see it, and you kind of assume that this is a flat space, um, when in actual fact. This was, you know, the city was in ruins. And I think if we kind of conjure up images that are more reminiscent of scenes from the Blitz in the 1940s, I think that might be more helpful in terms of how we visualise the city. So this this was a city that took an enormous amount of effort to um, remove this debris, then rebuild. But they actually managed to do it very quickly. And part of the reason for this were the fire courts that they put in place that basically sorted out who owned which bit of London, who had a tenancy um, in that section of London, how big homes were before, what size they'd needed to be afterwards. Um, So there was that that was put in place. But then also um, there were guidelines in terms of how buildings needed to be rebuilt, that they needed to be clad, clad at least in, in brick rather than with you know, made from wood, um, that they needed to be a certain amount of gap um, and space between the river and the houses to allow for access to water. Places and businesses that created flames and fire and um, fumes needed to be moved out to certain other, other locations as well. Um, but we do get a sense that by the 1670s, you know, you, you are having thousands of um, buildings that are being, you know, put back together again. And churches funding, individual funding for churches um, so lots of people donated to certain churches to have them rebuilt as well. And they were they were underway um too. So it's a fairly quick process. The big building, so obviously the biggest of all, St. Paul's Cathedral, took several decades to and several monarchs actually, um, until that was completed. Um, Christopher Wren actually saw the process throughout and and you know, which is quite remarkable really. Um, so yeah, I mean in many ways, it, there was a quick recovery. In other ways, it took a little bit longer. The financial recovery was was fairly swift because the businesses that were the kind of the beating heart of and the engine of economy in the city had managed to move most of their stuff outside um, to places that were a bit more safe.
2: Uh, what well, I mean, what other famous landmarks in in London were were um, either destroyed or damaged um, by the fire?
1: Okay, well, I can go through them. So, thirteen thousand houses were destroyed eighty seven churches, fifty two livery halls, um and then the city gates of London. So the gates of Ludgate, Newgate, and Aldersgate, they were severely damaged the Guildhall, which is still in, in London today, and it's still historic um, and predates the Great Fire, but that was damaged during the Great Fire quite badly. And um, The custom house that would have been a central part of the trade um, that was coming into London via um, the Thames, that was destroyed as well. St. Paul's Cathedral, we've already touched upon, was destroyed and then rebuilt. And um, Probably one of the biggest casualties outside of St. Paul's Cathedral was a castle known as Baynard's Castle, which was completely ruined um and um the royal exchange as well that was destroyed um with many of the statues it was a kind of this grand gesture to um commercial um ventures and that that was destroyed the only thing that um the only statue that remained intact from that actually was the statue of um thomas gresham himself who'd who'd um and um, paid for the building of the royal exchange um but then um We see that the cost was estimated, the cost of the damage was estimated to be around 10 million. Um, And I should stress as well that of the 86 churches that were destroyed, um, only a certain number of them were actually rebuilt. It kind of reorganised the way that parishes were were put together in the city of London. To be fair, there were probably too many churches anyway, but you don't want to get rid of them by, you know, devastating fire.
2: It's no. <laughs> <But, you know, laughs> quite it extreme. Kind of that. <laughs> yeah. Um so yes, who actually um and this is a question that's come up as well um on on social media, was was who paid for, um who paid for the um the rebuilding of London? Was it down to individuals to rebuild their houses or Um, you know, landlords or or what, did they get any sort of funding?
1: Um, There there was a mixture of um, ways in which the city was rebuilt. Um, So there was a tax on coal, which was used um, to rebuild the city. Um, There were churches, um, they had charitable donors or they would organise their own schemes to, um, you know, get money, (laughs) basically. But then of the homes that were destroyed and the individual houses and businesses that would fall to the individuals to kind of recover from that um and that's hard i mean imagine being hit by your building being destroyed but then having to pay and you know recover your assets as well so there was there was a mixture of, of things that were used to to rebuild the city
2: did, did london did they rebuild in the same way in in the sense that they were Houses and, and um, buildings were rebuilt in the same places or did they use it as an opportunity to kind of reshape London? How different is London after the fire as to how it looked before the fire?
1: Um, yeah, so th- this is one of the big famous stories about the fire is these kind of lost plans for this utopian city that could have been. So literally, probably as the fire was still burning, you would find all the polymaths in um in and around London scribbling down plans for re you know rebuilding the city. And you know, these plans were submitted to um the King by um Sir Christopher Wren. Christopher Wren annoyed the Royal Society by um, submitting the plan to the king before checking with them first. There was another plan by Robert Hooke. Um, there was a plan put forward by John Evelyn. There was a plan, which is one of my favourite ones, by a man called Valentine Knight, and it was literally just straight lines across a page. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, I may as well have a go. <laughs> you never <That's> know. inspiring. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, all these plans were put forward and they were considered, but at the, at the end of the day, and this is why the fire courts were so important, London wasn't owned by one person. It was owned by thousands of people. Everyone had a vested interest in their own section of London. So essentially, the city was rebuilt largely along the same lines as it had been before. The difference being that there was a bit more space, streets were a little bit wider, um, and buildings had to be stone or or brick. They they were not supposed to be wooden anymore. So they were rebuilt in a way to reduce the risk of of fire. But we see this legacy of Christopher Wren's plan for London kind of having a life of its own even. And the historian Michael Hebert, who's a historian of um, architectural history and and cities, has... um, Recently, um, recently put together an article that explored this this interesting legacy and how Christopher Wren, when when they were looking to rebuild the city after the Blitz, Christopher Wren's face and like resemblance and his vision of a utopian London was on one of the main pamphlets that was about rebuilding London after the Blitz, even though it never happened. So I feel like there are two stories here. There's the real. Bricks and mortar and um, rebuilding, but there's also this utopian London idea that that began and took hold after the Great Fire as well.
2: And um, one of the most most famous um, sources for for the fire is, is Samuel Pepys's diary. How much you know? Does uh, Eloise Ariel um, wanted to know? Um, does his diary add much to our understanding of the way of the fire itself and how it spread, other than how to bury cheese in your back garden? <laughs> 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 cheese and
1: wine we always get the wine <laughs> he buried wine as well um so and before before anyone thinks oh did he did he recover it no evidence in his diary of him actually retrieving this i'm sure he did though um so yes his diary is amazing it's a it's a brilliant account of what happened during the great fire and it really does help in terms of um understanding how it spread and we're we're really lucky when it comes to this period in time because there were quite a few. Diarists and accounts um, of what was going on. Most of them written by men. Um, frustratingly, I'd love to have more accounts that are written by women that give their perspective. But in any case, we do have these accounts. Um, one thing that I always find really interesting about Samuel Pepys during the Great Fire of London is he writes this incredible account um, of what's going on, of how he's you know put, moving his goods and, and to a house all the way out in you know far away as Bethnal Green. <laughs> um and he um but there's no evidence of him actually you know getting down and down and dirty and actually helping <laughs> put out the fire he's just commenting on this whole thing so i think he to be honest he was probably like a lot of people he was really you know worried about his own stuff he was sleep deprived so you do get this sense that well he does say that he forgets what day it is and um, he did he did do one key thing at the beginning of the fire which was tell the king that the fire was going on um and he feels that he's the first person to tell him but I'm pretty sure the king knew already but in any case it doesn't really matter he did go and he he instructed um he went back into the city to you know carry out certain instructions but after that point he's kind of He's kind of looking after number one, um, but you know, from his account, we get we get the the human side of things. So we get stories of women in the streets after the Great Fire, um, putting big wads of sugar into barrels of beer that they found and drinking them. You get the um, descriptions of pigeons having their wings scorched. You get this description of a cat having its fur singed. So all of these human things, um, we're really lucky to have from his diary
2: i mean you've you've written a book on on the topic I mean what other sources are there um that are kind of useful to to understanding more about the fire um well the fire court is amazing because the fire court records because you can
1: go into so many um different cases there's one um family that I write about in my book um well, I follow their story through, through the Great Plague and the Great Fire and the Anglo-Dutch Wars. And they're called the Vandermarsh family, and they're a family of Dutch immigrants that had been naturalised in 1661, I think. It might have been 1662. But in any case, they'd been naturalised. So they were, you know, they were Londoners. But because they were foreign born, despite being a very wealthy family, um, the head of the family, John or Johan Vandermarsh would never have been able to be an alderman but anyone else in his position would have had that opportunity and um, so you from the fire courts there are um, amazing records of what happened to that family during the great fire and um, he paid basically for people to help put out the fire he was handing out 50 pounds for people to help put out the fire around his home and on his street which was lime street um he lost most of his house in the end. But when you get to the fire courts, you have neighbours saying, yes, he, you know, he deserves to have this plot of land back again because he helped put out the fire. And um, so he's there faced with xenophobia because he's Dutch born and there's lots of that going on at the time. But then equally, neighbours on the ground are saying, no, he's 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 a good Dutch person. He's okay to have his house back. So it's a really complex pick. Picture that you get from from um, looking at the fire court records, other records. William Taswell, who I mentioned, was a schoolboy at the time. wrote a memoir when he was a man, um, much later on, and described his journey through through the Great Fire and how he was tackling the fire with his school friends um to the east of the city john evelyn's accounts are really good as well but then you find in the state records this is where you get the women coming into the picture a bit more you find in the state records petitions and people saying about things that they'd lost um and you get these female accounts but then there are also accounts from families letters that are going back and forth as well um describing the loss that they've encountered as a result
2: of course, you know, it wouldn't have just been the, it's not just the structures that were destroyed, it was the actual, uh, all the contents of, of people's homes and, and things like that. Um, how did they go about, how did they go about replacing that, that type of thing?
1: It was, yeah, I mean, that that was hard. So some, um, yeah, it, it was hard for people and how they replaced it. Um, I, I, In all honesty, I don't know, they would have put, it replaced it piecemeal and, and and as much as they can but what you find are these accounts of people um w- one man um I, th- I think his name's dr denton writes how his wife who'd owned a house within the city of london who, which had been a, a big part of their income and the house had been destroyed she was just in floods of tears the whole time she'd kind of recover herself for a little bit and then would be in floods of tears again because the prospect of rebuilding and you know going without crucial income for a long period of time was just overwhelming for some people. So, yeah, you're right. The buildings were lost. People's possessions were lost. But also the other thing that I think is often overlooked is the fact that people's souls were crushed as well. And this was an event that really stayed with people for a long time afterwards, if not their whole life.
2: Um, And is there any evidence or or stories of, of Charles II sort of visiting any of the, the sort of stricken parts of London? You know, you mentioned the Blitz earlier, and, and we know obviously that the royal family kind of looked at the damage and, you know, that's quite quite common in, in modern history. Did anything like that happen back then?
1: Yeah, so Charles made sure that he was seen, Charles and his brother made sure that they were seen um, and out and active trying to save the city as much as they could. I mean, this was for two reasons. Firstly, it was a necessity, That you know, the fire, the, the city was on fire and they kind of had to everybody had to do what they could to to save this city but secondly it was political too so There had been a lot of uncomfortableness, if that's a word, (laughs) unease is probably a better word, at the fact that um, the royal court had fled London during the Great Plague. Um, So it was really important politically for the king to be seen trying to fight for his capital city. Um, And we see that when the London Gazette, which was the main newspaper at the time, when the London Gazette comes back into print a couple of weeks after the Great Fire, we see that it's really emphasising the role that the king and the Duke of York played in um uplifting people's spirits and then also actively fighting the fire as
2: well just to kind of conclude i guess um i mean how different would london be if the great fire hadn't happened you know what was its legacy it's it's almost an
1: impossible question to ask because it it means that we're going to have to we'd have to go into a counterfactual and kind of imagine what may or may not have happened in the 18th century in the 19th century the 20th century so we we don't know how different i mean Obviously, lots of historic buildings were destroyed. Um, would there have been movements without the Great Fire of London to ensure that buildings were built in non-combustible materials? Probably, actually. There's evidence that um, that um, stone and, and brick buildings were being put in place before the Great Fire anyway. If you look to any of the grand houses that were kind of um on the strand and to the west of the metropolis of London, not the city of London, they were all made out of brick and, um, you know, sustainable materials like that. And there were a few houses and spaces in London, the city of London, that were doing the same. So maybe that would have happened and maybe it would have happened a little bit more slowly. I'm not sure. We probably would still have Baynard's Castle, I imagine, um I imagine that would have still still been around and probably still been a really important historic building that people visited even today, perhaps. um so yeah, I mean we we don't know i uh, for me, the biggest legacy of the Great Fire of London is the the psychological one for the people that experienced it um and Pepys was saying how he had nightmares about the Great fire months afterwards um and another um account um from a man said that he he didn't think the memory of this this terrible event would ever leave him throughout his whole life and i think that's where the real story is with the with the people that that experienced it
0: that was rebecca radial rebecca's book 1666 plague war and hellfire was published in 2016 by thomas dun books You can find a link to that in our show notes. And you can also find plenty more on the Great Fire of London at our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow for an episode on a pioneer of vaccination.